Amen, amen, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles out and you can join me in Jeremiah chapter 50. Uh, 50 and 51 is where we're going to be this morning by God's grace. I'll just uh, let the cat out of the bag. Probably obvious. I don't have much of a voice. Uh, I don't really know how far we're going to get this morning. Uh, normally, it's just because uh, there's a lot that God has for us, but this morning truly is a mystery. I don't, I don't know where we're going to end up. Uh, I don't know how long I'll be able to go, but uh, we'll just see what the Lord has for us here this morning. So we're uh, in Jeremiah 50 and 51. Let me begin with this thought. Knowing how something ends, knowing how something finishes, changes how we view it in the moment. Let me say that again. Knowing how something ends changes how we view it in the moment. So if you've ever watched a movie, and then you go back and you watch that same movie a second time, especially if it was a surprise ending or some kind of suspense at the end, you aren't watching it with the same level of angst and uncertainty because you know how it ends. If you're watching a sporting event and you actually know the final score, even though your team might be losing with two minutes to go, you're not afraid right? because you know somehow in the end they come back and win. And the text that we come to this morning is going to give us the end, right? And knowing how something ends changes how we view it in the moment. And so this text that's going to give us the end is intended, listen, to shape the entirety of Israel's time in exile if they will believe what God has to say. And loved ones, I would argue that God's word for you and I this morning will shape your life and in my life if we will believe what God has to say. Here's where God's word is going to lead us this morning. This idea right here. That God's judgment, specifically in, in this passage on Babylon, God's judgment on Babylon is a word to his people of future hope in their present hardship. God's judgment is a word to his people of future hope in their present hardship. God's going to judge. God's going to vindicate. God's going to restore. He's going to return his people. And that should be shaping how we view our life in this present moment. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and we're going to ask God to help us see all that he has here in his word. Why don't you join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and good Heavenly Father, we do pray, God, that you would help us to see with clarity all that your word has. God, that you would help us to see the present hope uh, that we have in spite of our current struggles. God, would you help us to look forward, help us to see the conclusion, and how that would shape and alter our life today. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning. God, praying for Christ Church and for Pastor Nathan Sherman. God, praying for that body of believers, that you would be working in them, God, in the same way that we desire you'd be working in us. So God, would you come now, have your way, accomplish your good purposes. We pray this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. All right, title of the message this morning is Our Hope in God's Judgment. Our Hope in God's Judgment. And again, this idea that God's judgment is a word to his people, a future hope, and their present hardship. Now, here's what you got to understand about what we're coming to here in this passage. The book of Jeremiah is now coming full circle, right? For so much of the book of Jeremiah, the nation of Babylon was the instrument that God used to judge his people. 
But now is, God is going to judge Babylon itself. And really this entire section, what Pastor Brian started last week in chapter 46, which will run all the way through chapter 51, is God's judgment on all of the nations. But 46 to 49 was God's judgment on all the nations who had historically mistreated and maligned and abused Israel. And so, so God is saying really throughout this entire section, he's saying in the same way that I dealt with Egypt, in the same way that I dealt with the Philistines, in the same way I dealt with the Moabites and the Ammonites and on and on and on, I'm going to deal with Babylon. Right? Knowing how something ends changes how we view it in the moment. So actually, I want to begin at the end of our passage to just drill that point home. So flip with me here to Jeremiah 51. I'm going to start in verse 59 because it frames the entirety of our time in God's word. Here's what it says. 51:59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Everything you and I are about to see is proclaimed at the beginning of the exile. Right? So this is happening early on in the exile. Look at verse 60. Here's what it is. Jeremiah wrote in a book, all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. So loved ones, everything that you and I are going to see here today, it was written early on. It's a word given early to give hope and context to Israel and a future vision for God's people. This is our hope in God's judgment. And so with that, let's get into the text. Just two points. Chapter 50 and chapter 51, in a lot of ways, they're, they're, they're quite similar to each other. But let's begin with this idea. When we look at chapter 50, this idea, God's devastation and our hope of restoration. Let me say that again. God's devastation and our hope of restoration. Now, the entirety of this chapter is going to toggle back and forth through these two major themes, the theme of devastation and restoration. And at times, it'll go back and forth from one verse to the next. And so, so in thinking about how to best preach this, it felt like it would be quite jarring if we just went verse by verse. It would be kind of like watching a tennis match, except you and I wouldn't be spectators. We'd be the ball getting knocked back and forth. And so what I want us to do is to just kind of step back and from, from a bird's eye view, look down upon the entirety of this passage and attempt to see these two major themes uh, that come out. So we'll begin with the theme of devastation. Uh, here's what we see throughout chapter 50. It's God's devastation of his enemy. Let me read verses 1 through 3 just to get us started and give us some context. It says this, the word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, Con conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken, Bel is put to shame, Merodach is dismayed, her images are put to shame, her idols are dismayed. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it, both man and beast shall flee away. See, this is God's devastation of his enemy. God is, God is actually posturing and positioning himself against Babylon. God is the enemy of Babylon. And we talk about uh, the, the enemy, right? A, a, an enemy is anyone who opposes or defies God or his decree. Babylon, for much of the book of Jeremiah, has been the instrument of God's purposes in spite of their own defiance to God. Now, now don't miss this, because this is actually a profound word for us. 
that God can, listen, loved ones, God can and God will use even those who are hostile toward him or even those who are vehemently, vehemently opposed to him for his good purposes, and he will still hold them accountable. Did you hear that? God will use even the people that are opposed to him, the people that hate him, the people that mock him. He will use them to accomplish his purposes, and he will still hold them accountable. So, loved ones, here's the implication for this. That boss of yours that mocks you for your faith, that professor or that teacher that maligns you because you love Jesus, that neighbor who slanders you because of your adherence to Christ, a government that stands in opposition to Jesus, no, no, they, they can still all be used by God, and they will all be held accountable by God. Let me try to illustrate this. So when I was in college, like a, a lifetime ago, right, but when I was in college, I went to NAU, Northern Arizona University, uh, wildly liberal then, uh, only more liberal now, uh, but had plenty of professors who didn't exactly uh, love Christians. And so I was in th this particular class. It was a lab science or, or earth science, and it had both the lecture and the lab uh, portion to it. And so there was a gal who was my lab partner, uh, definitely not a believer, uh, but lots of conversations about spiritual things. So we're sitting in this lecture hall one day, and the professor is talking about all of the different earth systems and how they're all interrelated with one another and all of the intricacies at which they play upon one another and how if any one of these systems were slightly altered, how the entire system falls apart and for 15, 20 minutes going on and on about this. And here was his conclusion. He said, for anyone to believe in God has to be an absolute fool and moron. And so my lab partner just kind of leans over and she goes, you see? And I just smiled and I said, are you kidding me? The professor just with, with, with stunning clarity scientifically demonstrated the intricacy of God's design. He actually just proved my point. Let's talk more after class. <laughs> see, what, what, the professor hated God. And yet in that moment, he was used by God and he will also be held accountable by God. That's what God's doing here with Babylon. See, loved ones, the good news is this, that anyone at any time in God's sovereign providence could be used to accomplish God's purposes, even if they hate him. That's what God's doing. And so notice how God devastates his enemy. We see it in a couple ways. First of all, make note of this, that God executes vengeance on his enemies. God executes vengeance on his enemies. Now, the verbiage throughout chapter 50 uh, highlights this. Let me just give you a few places where we see this. Uh, verse 9, uh, God says, For behold, I'm stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country. Verse 13, Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled. Verse 15, Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. Here it is. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she is done. God's saying, I'm going to take vengeance on them. I'm going to punish them. There's going to be retribution. You have to pay for what you've done. See, the reality is Babylon was not righteous in how they pursued and came against Israel. And God highlights that in a number of different places. Verse 11, he refers to them as plunderers of his heritage. In verse 17, 
uh, he, he says that Israel is a, is a hunted sheep driven away by lions, referring both to Assyria and to Babylon. In verse 24, it says, because they opposed the Lord. In verse 33, they oppressed uh, Israel, the people of Judah. So God's saying, listen, this is what you've done. I'm going to hold you accountable for your sin. This is why vengeance and this is why punishment is necessary. They defied God. So we actually see, <coughs> look at verse 35. We see the sword language. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon. Verse 36, a sword against the diviners, a sword against her warriors, a sword against her horses and against her chariots, a sword against all her treasures that they may be plundered. Right? The, the sword language uh, conveys this comprehensive destruction of the entirety of the nation. Vengeance is going to come to all of Babylon. So you have to understand, you have to understand, listen church, that God's vengeance, God's judgment, God's wrath, God's punishment is going to come to all who defy him. There is no escaping this. Babylon is not going to be exempt. And I say all of this because this actually is a word of hope to God's people. And here's why this is a word of hope. Remember, when this was written, Babylon looked utterly unbeatable. See, this word is intended to frame the entirety of the exile. God's saying, I know you can't see it right now, but I'm just telling you, I'm going to hold them accountable. God is attempting to offer hope in a time of distress. He's saying, I am going to have my way. See, what's happening in, in chapter 50 and 51 really is quite similar to how the entire book of Revelation functions. So think about Revelation for a moment. Right, Revelation was written early in the church age, but, 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 it, but it was written to a future time where God would have a decisive and ultimate victory. But when it was written, the church was not looking around going, we're crushing it. No, the, the, the church was, was being maligned and persecuted. The church was on the fringes of society. I mean, for goodness sakes, the guy who wrote it was exiled to, to an island on a death sentence. That's the setting by which the book is even written in. It was written to those who are presently struggling that God would ultimately be victorious. It's a future word offering present hope. That's what's happening here in chapter 50. So let me actually try to illustrate this. I want you to turn over because I'm going to read a large portion of Revelation 19. Very end of your Bibles, Revelation 19, literally one or two pages from the end of your Bible. And I want to read this section. And as I read this section, I want you to think, in an age, right, for, for, for believers, right, how does this stimulate, challenge, encourage, help us? Here it is. I'm going to start in verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. By the way, this is Jesus, in case you weren't sure. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave and free, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Can you see all the kings, all the nations? They want to position themselves against God. Here's, here's how it finishes. And the beast was captured, verse 20. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of the fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, as believers, in a day and age where so much looks so bleak, do you read that and find yourself going, eh, that's kind of interesting? Or do you read that and find yourself going, praise God, we're going to win in the end? Like that, that, that's the whole point. That, 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 that's what's happening here, right? We're, we're encouraged. We're reminded God's going to be victorious. The nonsense of our day and age is going to come to a reckoning before God. So, loved ones, that should change how you and I live, right? You and I can live in confidence. God will be victorious. Loved ones, you and I can live in holiness. God's way is right. You and I can live with gospel purpose, because Jesus must be made known because he and he alone is the only way that anyone is going to be saved. You and I can live with patience because God's going to vindicate his people. You and I can live in hope because our God rules over all. That's the point. And, and that, that's what's going on here in chapter 50. In fact, it leads us to this, the, the, the second idea of, of God's devastation, that God rules over his enemies. Right Throughout this entire chapter, that, 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 there, there's no question, there's no debate about who wins. Right? There's never this moment where, where, where the outcome is in doubt. Like, you know, I wonder if, if Babylon withstands long enough, maybe. No, there's none of that. Right, listen, again, just to a sampling of what we see. Uh, verse 9, For behold, I'm stirring up and bringing into Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Verse 13, Right, she, Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be in utter desolation. Verse 25, listen to this. The Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. God's like, man, I'm just getting started. Verse 26, come against her from every quarter. God's like, I'm going to consume you. But maybe, maybe the clearest image of all is what we see in verse 44. Look at what it says there. Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of Jordan... Against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. He's saying, I'm going to hunt you down like a lion. God really is the king of the jungle. Right? He's ruling over all. And so, church, don't think for a moment. Don't ever think for a moment that God's not entirely in control. God is ruling over his enemies. God is ruling over this world. And even in this present moment, where it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't seem like it, it doesn't look like it for Israel, God's ruling over them, and he's ruling over Babylon. And so don't miss this, because this principle is wildly important for us today, is it not? Because this isn't true just in Jeremiah 50. This is true today as well. So pick your leader, pick your political entity. It applies to all of them. 
Whether you want to talk about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, you want to talk about Putin and Russia, you want to talk about Xi and China, you want to talk about Biden and the U.S., doesn't matter. They're not ruling. They're not in charge. They're not calling the shots. God is ruling over his world. Presently, currently, in this moment. In fact, look at what God goes on to say in verse 44. He says, for who's like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? God's like, who calls me to come and stand before them? I don't stand before anybody. I call everyone to come and stand before me. And so, loved one, you can take confidence in the fact God's ruling over us. God sees what is happening, and God will bring devastation to those who oppose him. That's a word of hope for the people of God. And we see a second element of hope with this other side of this theme. It's not just devastation, but it's also God's restoration of his people. That God is restoring his people. Now, now the people who receive this word, they're facing a lifetime of difficulty. Right? The restoration is not, oh, we're spared from Babylon. We get to go live this happy, hunky-dory life back in Israel. No, the, the entirety of their life is going to be expended in exile. Right? It's going to be hard. But this word is not futile. It's not, it's not wasted because what God is doing is he's moving them to restoration. And loved ones, for us, this is how you and I should be viewing our life in the very present struggle of sin and brokenness that we live in as well. Right, that there's this future restoration that's going to come in Jesus. And so, in fact, notice a few ways that we see God's restoration of his people. Here's the first, look at verse 4 and 5, that God returns his people to himself. <clears throat> God returns his people to himself. It says in verse 4, in those days, and at that time, right, future, it's a future. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. Right? God's going to return his people to himself. The everlasting covenant of Jeremiah 31 is very much in play. It's very much in view with what God's talking about. God's people are going to be eternally joined to him. This is God's restoration, both of his promise to his people, right, to return them both to the land as well as returning them unto himself. We just marvel at this for a moment. Just marvel at how stunning it is that the gospel of God compels rebels to return. I mean, just, just think about this for a second, right? That, that God acts in a way so that those who defied him and rebelled against him can be reconciled and restored unto him. I mean, it's stunning, isn't it? Yeah, th th this, is, this is our hope, right? This is, this is what God's doing. That God, God returns us to himself. Which, by the way, loved ones, right? Th this just exposes in this moment the absolute ridiculousness and silliness when you and I wonder, does God really love me when I still mess up? Do, do, do you not understand what, what the Bible's telling us? God met you when you were messed up. God saved you when you were messed up. God continues to be faithful to you as you continue to mess up. It's the whole point. Right? Like, 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 like God is returning his people unto himself. 
There's no sense of like, well, is he still going to love me? No, he knew you and you were messed up. That's the only way God has known you. God returns his people to himself. Notice, secondly, how God restores. Look at verse 6. Look at these first two lines. Man, I love this. You should, you should circle this. My people. My people. My people have been lost sheep. See, this is God's possessive care of his people. And I love it when God gets possessive of his people. When God's saying, no, no, they're mine. Those are my people. They belong to me. And here's what I want you to take note of. In the Bible, when God gets really possessive of his people, rarely, if ever, is it when the people are doing well. In fact, normally, when God gets possessive of his people, it's usually when they're at their worst. Right? This is not a proud parent moment for God. He's not pointing out to the nations, look at my people. No, they're, they're in utter rebellion and defiance. Right? They're not winning some award. They did not make the honor roll. This is more like God pointing out, that's my child when they're in a police lineup. That's what this is like. And yet God's saying, no, no, they're, they're mine. They're mine. See, often in the Bible, when God says they're mine, it's when we're at our absolute worst. That's what's happening here. That's what happens in the book of Hosea. Right? When God says, say to not my people that they're my people. Right? Not my people is acting like prostitutes and hookers. They're utterly unfaithful. And God's saying, no, they're mine. That's what God says in Isaiah when he says, I have called you by name, child, you are mine. They're not living in righteousness. They're rejecting and rebelling against God. See, they're not killing it. They're an utter mess. And it's wildly comforting that God possesses us when we're at our worst. See, God says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love for us in this and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, when you had absolutely nothing good going your way, God said, oh, that's when I'm going to save you. God makes us his when we're at our absolute worst, and that's great news because we know without any reservation, without any doubt, it had nothing to do with us, and it had everything to do with him. And so, loved one, here's what you got to ask yourself. Are you comforted by the fact that God is going to possessively care for you? Do you and will you find security in God saying, you're mine? Will you believe what God is saying and trust your his, not because of what you've done, but solely what Christ has done on your behalf? This is God's possessive care of his people. It's part of how he's restoring us. And then notice thirdly, look at verse 19 and 20. We see God's pardon of his people's iniquity. God's pardon of his people's iniquity. Verse 19, I will restore Israel, right? There's that restoration language. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied in the hills of Ephraim and Gilead, and in those days and in that time declares the Lord, listen to this, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none, and sin in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. He's like, man, you can't even find sin and iniquity. And the reason you can't find it is because of God's pardon. All sin entirely expunged, completely erased, purged through the blood of Jesus, that you are completely and entirely rid of all sin. Oh, praise God for that. This is God's pardon of his people iniquity. In fact, let me say two things with respect to this. First of all, that God's pardon comprehensively cleanses us. 
it comprehensively cleanses us. Right now, now this, this passage seems to in, be anticipating beyond the days of Jeremiah. This seems to be looking forward to what Jesus is going to ultimately do for us. Right, but where no sin is left behind, no trace amount left within you. And so think of it like this: if you if you've ever had cancer and you go back for a follow up scan. There's always that lingering doubt. Maybe they're going to find something. No, no, when it comes to sin, no scan is needed. You are comprehensively cleansed. It is entirely removed from us. But notice also that God's pardon is graciously granted to us. Right? God says, I will pardon. He is the one that's going to do this. God is doing this of his own initiative and his own action. It's graciously granted to us. Because, listen very carefully, God does not pardon like you and I do. Did you hear that? God does not pardon like you and I pardon. So, join me real quick. Isaiah 55, I want you to see this. Isaiah 55. In fact, some of you probably really familiar with verses 8 and 9. And if you're familiar with 8 and 9 and not familiar with uh, verses 6 and 7, you've probably been uh, misapplying verses 8 and 9. Here's what 8 and 9 says. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. Now we tend to read these verses and we think about God's omniscience and that he knows all things and God's smarter than us and he, he can see all things. And that's true, but that's not what Isaiah 55 is talking about. Not even close. In fact, you've stripped it from its context and you're missing actually the force of what God's saying in Isaiah 55 because look at verse 6 and 7. Here's how God is so wildly different than you and I. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly, what's that next word? Pardon. That's how God's so wildly different than you and I. God doesn't pardon like you and I do. God doesn't forgive like you and I do. Right, we get wronged. Okay, I'll forgive you this time. We get wronged again. We're like, oh, I don't know. And yet God continues to let the unrighteous return. God continues to let the wicked forsake their way. Because God's ways and God's thoughts are not like your ways and my ways and our thoughts when it comes to pardon. See, God's pardon is graciously granted to us. What a beautiful picture that Isaiah is demonstrating for us, that the Jeremiah is unfolding for us. Right? This is God's pardon of his people's iniquity. God is restoring his people. God is devastating his enemy. And there is great hope in both of that, uh, both of those elements for us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we get to chapter 51. And we see here, this is the final word of judgment in the book of Jeremiah. Now again, God's going to put into motion here what at the proper time, decades later, is going to be executed on Babylon. Now, as we look at chapter 51, it's, it's a long chapter, 64 verses, a uh, number of aspects that unfold. I want to focus on three of them, three of them for us, uh, really to kind of help us put some handles on this chapter. God's final word of judgment. Here's the first as we look at verses 1 through 14. It's God's vengeance to Babylon <coughs> and vindication for his people. God's vengeance to Babylon and vindication for his people. Now, they're tied together, but here's what I want you to note, that God is the active agent in all of this. So look at the number of places we see that God's the one doing this. Verse 1, 
Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer. Verse 2, and I will send to Babylon winnowers. Verse 10, the Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Verse 11, the Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. God's the one that's doing this. God's doing this. God's bringing vengeance. God's bringing vindication. So here, let's just drill down on each of these for a moment. First of all, God's vengeance against Babylon. Right? We see this in verse 6. It says, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment that he is rendering her. Right? So God is doing this. And loved one, hear me, hear me, hear me when I see this, because I think this is a word we all need. You have to let God do this. When it comes to vengeance, you got to let God be the one who execute this. you got to let God do what he is going to do. Here's the problem for too many of us. For too many, to- too many times and too often in our life, we want to take matters and vengeance into our own hands. It may be because we're impatient. It may be because we just don't ultimately believe that God is going to act. We might be lashing out. Vengeance belongs to God. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it says, vengeance is yours, repay whenever you feel like it. That's not what it says. What does it say? Vengeance is mine, says who? Says the Lord. Right? It belongs to Him. And so, so, so God is going to do it His way and in His time. So where you've been mocked, where you've been maligned, where you've been mistreated, you can rest assured God, God's going to bring vengeance. Don't go run ahead of God. Don't try to outmaneuver God. Let God do what he's going to do and what he should do. God's vengeance against Babylon, against his enemy. And yet the other side of this is that God vindicates his people. Now look at verse 10. It says, the Lord has brought about our vindication. The Lord has brought about our vindication. See, God vindicates his people. The people weren't innocent. They deserved exile, but in exile, God's not forsaking. He's not forgetting his people. He's lovingly disciplining them, right? It legitimizes the relationship. Here's what you and I got to remember. Here's what we got to keep in mind. We're going to be vindicated by the Lord. And the vindication of Jeremiah 51, it doesn't come right away, does it? It's actually going to be decades later before this vindication ultimately falls on Babylon. And so, loved one, when we think about that in our own life, we have to remember that our hope in God, our hope in God is going to be, that's who's going to bring about vindication. And so we want to be humbled because God is the one who's going to do it, not you and I. And so we want to hold fast in our present moment, knowing that vindication is going to come, but it's going to come in God's timing and in God's way when God decrees. And so here's, here's the evidence, or here's some of the signs that you're trusting God to vindicate and you're not attempting to take matters into your own hands. You don't feel the need to defend yourself. Right? If, if you're going to let God vindicate, you, you don't feel the need to defend yourself. My second you can readily admit your own failures. Right? You, you don't have to be right in all things. On and on we could go, but right, these are just some of the signs, some of the evidences, some of the ways that we're trusting God's vindication. So ask yourself, will you trust God to vindicate you? Will you patiently wait 
for his better vindication instead of running ahead and attempting to take matters into your own hands. God's vengeance of Babylon and his vindication to his people. Here's the second thing we see. In verses 15 to 26, we see our praise of God's power. It's almost like in this kind of odd way, Jeremiah almost just like breaks into song. He just gets so excited about what God's going to do. He just starts talking about how awesome God is. Look at verse 15, following. Right? What we see first is we see that we praise God's power over creation. He says this, it's he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretch out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there's a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. And he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Right? We're, we're praising God's power over creation. We're reminded of God's creative power. And here's what creation does. Creation reminds us of God's power and of God's rule. But creation also reminds us of our own finite and created status, right? When you look at creation, it reminds you we're part of that. So, so, so think of it like this. No one looks out over the valley of our city towards the Sandias and looks at the mountains and go, you know what? I'm awesome. I look at those mountains and I just think to myself, I'm incredible. I'm so impressed with, no one does that. At least no one normal if you're doing that. Right, there's some issues. And, and, and because what does creation do? It reminds us, right? We, we look at the beauty, especially this time of year, right in the evening, that pink hue that, that, that colors the rocks and the stature of the mountains. Right? We feel small. We're reminded, man, God spoke and brought all that into existence. And so what creation does, it actually helps to reorient and recalibrate us back to the position of God's power and to our very finite limitations. Let us be people who praise our God for his power over all of creation. But not only are we praising God's power over creation, but look at verse 20 to 26. This is a really interesting little section. We praise God's power to accomplish his purposes. So in verse 20, here's what God says of Babylon. He says, you are my hammer and weapon of war. He's like, let me tell you what you are. You're a tool. You are my tool to accomplish my purposes. And then 10 times you see this phrase, with you I break or with you I destroy. God's saying, I do whatever I want with you. I do whatever I want with you. See, the entire time, Babylon was a means to God's purposes. That They weren't operating in, in autonomy. They weren't operating in independent of God. They were simply a tool of the Lord's. Don't forget, the same is true today. Leaders and rulers, they're not autonomous from God. They are tools being used to accomplish God's purposes for his glory. Now, I'd be willing to bet everything I'd ever owned on this. I guarantee you Judah didn't see it in the moment. Judah wasn't looking at, at Nebuchadnezzar, and they weren't looking at Babylon going, oh, yeah, they're just, a, they're just an instrument in the hand of the Lord. They didn't see it in the moment. But I promise you a day came where they're like, oh, I see it now. And I say that because I promise you, none of us can see it all in the moment. We don't look out at all of our leaders and all of our rulers and go, oh, I see how they are absolutely an instrument of the Lord. But loved ones, a day is going to come where you're going to realize, oh, that's exactly what's happening. Because hindsight is 20-20. Foresight rarely is. 
God's people are given a future perspective into a present moment. God's going to accomplish his purposes and no one will thwart him. Don't forget that. And so that, that leads in really to the rest of this chapter, which is captured under this heading, God's plan for judgment. God's plan for judgment. And if you've read through this, uh, this is a very graphic depiction of all that's going to come to Babylon. Verse 29 really captures it in summary form well. It says, The land trembles and writhes in pain, for the Lord's purposes against Babylon stand, to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. God's plan for judgment. Now, there's no shortage of things that we could say here. I want to just say three things briefly about God's plan for judgment, and I'll just highlight a couple of specific places we see this, though you'll see it in a variety of places uh, if you read through this. But here's the first. Go to verse 34 uh, and following. What we see in 34 to 36 is that God addresses all sin of all people. God addresses all sin of all people. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He's crushed me. He's made me an empty vessel. He's swallowed me like a monster. He's filled his stomach with my delicacies. He's rinsed me out. The violence done to me and my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitant of Zion say, my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Let Jerusalem say, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I'll plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry. Here's what God's saying. God's saying, I see the sin of Babylon, and I see your sin. See, because God God sees and addresses all sin of all people. Nothing's hidden from him. Nothing gets past him. Nothing is cloaked or shrouded or hidden from him. Nothing escapes his view. And so because of that, no one gets away with anything in God's economy. Did you hear that? No one gets away with anything. And and there's a few implications of this when we think about our own life. First of all, just make note of this, that God sees your sin. Not hiding anything from him. Can't hide your sin from God. He sees through that. He sees our sin. And so, loved one, this is where you and I would do well to just be honest and realistic about our sin. You and I are gonna wrestle with sin till the day that we die or until the day that Jesus comes back. All of us, all of us, all of us are gonna struggle with this. Like, like, like no person, no person can say, I've conquered all the sin in every area of my life. I'm just waiting to die or have Jesus come back. No one's getting to say that. Right, see, what, what, what the gospel actually does, the gospel actually frees us to be honest about our struggle. It frees us to be honest about the ways that, man, we're just, we're just trying the best that we can, but, but, but man, we're going to come up short. And so it should prompt in us a humility and a grace towards others in their struggle because the same way you don't have it together, they don't have it together. Don't forget, you have sin and God sees it. But the other implication that shows up in this is that God also sees where you and I are sinned against. See, God never misses any way, any form, any time you and I are sinned against. And so now, listen, watch this, watch this, because God has addressed both sides of this in Jesus. First of all, God has freed us from the penalty that we deserved in our sin through the shed blood of Jesus. 
The reason you and I don't fall under wrath is because Jesus died in our place. But on the other side of this, where you and I have been sinned against, God has granted to us through Jesus the ability to forgive our brother or sister so we are not overcome by bitterness. And so you don't get, you don't get to live in your bitterness. You don't get to live in your malice. You don't get to hold someone else hostage in the way they've sinned against you because Jesus has not treated you in that same way, right? Because if, there, if there's any area where you're withholding forgiveness, you are acting contrary to the way that Christ has acted towards you. God addresses all sin of all people. Secondly, God gives retribution where warranted. So we see this all over the place. Verse 40, I'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter. 44, I'll punish Bel in Babylon. Verse 47, I'll punish the images of Babylon. Verse 56, for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. Right? God is the active agent. Don't lose sight of the fact we all deserve judgment. It's warranted. We should suffer these consequences. And God would be entirely right to condemn all of us to hell. We've defied God, and like Babylon, we deserve that same destruction. And yet, even here in Jeremiah 51, right, there's gospel grace. Look at verse 45. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. So because part of God's plan for judgment, he's going to address sin, he's going to give retribution, but that God also spares his people from his wrath. God spares his people from his wrath. Right in the middle of this judgment, here's God ushering his people out of judgment. He spares them. It's a portrait of what God will ultimately do for us in Jesus. God delivers, God spares his people from the judgment that they deserve. In just a couple moments, we'll we'll come to the table. But I, I just want us to consider here for a moment sin and wrath and really the way that you and I are spared. Loved ones, consider everything is broken because of our sin. Everything is tainted and marred because of our sin. We die because of our sin. And so every judgment... Every judgment that God, uh, uh, or every judgment could fall upon us to be punished, to be struck down, to, to be destroyed. And yet the reason that does not happen is because we're spared. Let me just let that sink in. You're spared. You're forgiven. You're granted release. The price is paid. The debt is eliminated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, God, for your incredible mercy. God, that we are forgiven in you. Father, we pray that you would help us to see it. God, that we would find ourselves just in in humbled adoration of your great grace. To us, your people, we pray this in your name. Amen.